been so personally blessed by biblical scholars who point out the Hebraic nature of the Christian faith. However, born-again believers must stay true to the simplicity and the intent of the gospel for which Jesus, Yeshua is his Hebrew name, gave his blood, his body, and soul. Can we embrace the Hebrew Roots movement and yet stay true to the freedom that's inherent in the gospel? The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. Shalom, I'm Christine Dark. Christians and Jews are forging new and valuable relationships. I enjoy the recovery of the Hebrew roots of our faith, and I believe it's important to rediscover our Hebraic heritage that's been neglected for centuries by the church. We owe a debt to the Jewish people for preserving these holy scriptures and for giving us the Savior from the tribe of Judah and especially we owe a debt to the Jews for being guardians of the Bible, this word of God. There's so much insight that we can learn from the Bible's Hebraic cultural context. The new covenant simply cannot be understood or properly appreciated without an intimate knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures. Bible scholars often say that the book of Genesis is absolutely foundational to understanding all the Bible. I've been so blessed by biblical scholars who think Hebraically. However, born-again Christians must stay true to the simplicity of the gospel for which Jesus, Yeshua is his Hebrew name, gave his blood, his body, and his soul. There is a big temptation, and this subject needs to be addressed. It's tempting for believers in the Hebrew Roots movement to become so enamored with Jewish traditions, to be seduced into thinking that it's not good enough to be a Christian, a disciple of Jesus. The more we engage with our Jewish brethren, the temptation for some professing Christians is to think that we need somehow to be Jewish or to keep the law of Moses in order to please God and to be saved. I've known of professing Christians who have converted to Judaism, but in my opinion, they were never born again in the first place. Because when you really know Jesus, you'll never give him up for anything else. Some people in the Hebrew Roots movement just go overboard, insisting that we must have Jesus plus the Sabbath, or Jesus plus circumcision, or Jesus plus ceremonial aspects of the Torah. Well, in his epistle to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul expressed his personal heartbreak that the church he founded in Galatia, what today is part of modern Turkey, had fallen into dangerous deception. The Galatians were no longer trusting in the Savior alone for their salvation. They had lapsed into a doctrine of salvation by works, by keeping various Jewish customs. Previously, Paul had graphically preached to them about the sufficiency of Messiah's substitutionary death on the cross in order to satisfy God for forgiveness of our sins. 
the Galatians had responded joyfully and received the gift of the Holy Spirit. But then along came other teachers and insisted that the gospel message wasn't sufficient. Jewish customs had to be added and adopted. And so Paul rebuked them. He cried, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Throughout the history of the church, this sort of error has been called legalism or Judaizing. And yet we have to be careful what we label as Judaizing because not all Hebrew roots teaching is Judaizing by any means. Just because I enjoy insights of rabbinic scholars doesn't mean that I've been Judaized. For example, one of my former pastors in Jerusalem often brought us wonderful illustrations and insights, for example, into the Lord's Last Supper, the Jewish Passover Seder, because as a Messianic Jew, he knew the Hebraic roots of our faith. He did believe in salvation by faith in the atoning death of Jesus, Yeshua alone, yet he experienced opposition within the church hierarchy for his biblical teachings. His detractors wrongly accused him of Judaizing, but he was simply explaining the Gospels in their cultural context. An anti-Semitic spirit had, in fact, opposed his ministry. He held services on Sundays and didn't try to convince people to keep the Sabbath or to convert to Judaism. He simply explained the Gospel through the eyes of New Testament Jewish culture. After all, the first Christians were Jews. They still went to the temple on the Sabbath, but they celebrated the resurrection of Jesus on Sundays, the Lord's Day, and they broke bread together. Recently, a friend on Facebook made a public post saying that she was fed up with her Torah study group. She had grown weary of the group because they always condemned other Christians for not keeping the Sabbath or for not pronouncing the name of God a certain way. She said they set themselves up as God's elite and looked down their noses with haughty pride on others. Well, that was one person's experience. Yet on the other hand, I've participated in Torah studies where none of that sort of superior spirit was exhibited. The church has a lot to learn and to recover, such as the importance of celebrating the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus when those events actually occurred during Passover. Jesus and the apostles never celebrated Easter. That pagan name is associated with a fertility goddess. But Passover is the biblical feast when Messiah, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us. Passover, and not a Gentile Easter calendar, is the correct time to remember the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. So, for many years, our ministry has held Passover convocations in Israel to honor the Lamb of God. We have remembered His death, burial, and resurrection in sync with Passover and with the Jewish people when those holy events of the Atonement actually occurred and fulfilled Bible prophecy. Why should churches commemorate the Lord's death and resurrection at the wrong time? Why should we celebrate out of sync with the Jewish people? The Gospels clearly tell us that Jesus died at Passover and he was resurrected on the Levitical feast of first fruits. 
Well, if the Apostle Paul could visit some of the churches today, he might very well rebuke congregations like he rebuked the Galatians. Paul wrote, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting Jesus for a different gospel, even though there's really not another gospel. Only, he said, there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel. But Paul added, even if we are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we've preached to you. Let him be accursed. Paul was so adamant on this point that he repeated himself. He wrote, I say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you receive, he is to be accursed. Well, before he was converted, Paul had persecuted the early church. But now on the other side of his dramatic Damascus Road encounter with the risen Lord, Paul's doctrine had diametrically changed. He once hated Jesus. Now he preached Messiah crucified. But Paul certainly hadn't lost his strong personality. Now he dramatically pronounces a rabbinic curse, what's called an anathema on false prophets. Also, when Paul departed from his congregation in Ephesus, he wept because he foresaw that savage wolves would penetrate the flock. False teachers would not spare the flock. So, once again, Paul didn't mince words. Even from your own number, he wrote, men will rise up and distort the truth. And why? He said their purpose would be to draw away disciples after themselves. And it still happens today. False teachers are always drawing away disciples after themselves. The Lord Jesus warned his followers repeatedly to be aware of false Christs, false prophets, and false teachers. In light of various ongoing controversies within the church, controversies such as Judaizing within the Hebrew Roots movement and the ecumenical movement that wants to unify Charismatics and Roman Catholics and even with uh, Islam, I'd like to say that it's been healthy and refreshing to commemorate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Reformation sermons and teachings that I've listened to have been like a booster shot against error and a refresher course in basic Bible doctrine. It's vital to revisit the Reformation from time to time to renew our understanding of the great price that the Reformers paid, some of them with their life's blood, to recover the biblical truth of the complete reliance on Scripture as the only source of proper belief. The Reformation also taught the essential doctrine that faith in Jesus alone and not faith in our own righteousness or the law, but faith in Jesus is the only way to obtain God's pardon for sin. We need to understand these biblical truths recovered by the Protestant Reformation and not be part of promoting the one world religion. Some call it Chrislam. During the days prior to the Reformation, the church had become so corrupt that people were bewitched into buying indulgences. They were enchanted into thinking that they could pay money for themselves and their departed loved ones to escape hell and the lie of a place called purgatory. Rather than relying upon the crucified Savior for their salvation, they fell for the lie of 
hoping to pay money for their salvation. The Apostle Paul expressed his personal heartbreak that the Galatians had fallen into the deception of trusting in good works for salvation because they were no longer trusting exclusively in the Savior. They had lapsed into a works-faith doctrine. So he wrote in Galatians 3.1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Bewitched is a shocking word, and it's the only verse in the Bible where bewitched is used. So I did a word study, and in Strong's Dictionary of Bible Words, bewitched means to cast an evil spell or to wish injury upon someone. It also can mean to exercise evil power over somebody. Synonyms are captivate, fascinate, and spellbind. Bewitched also means to appeal to vanity and to blight by the evil eye. In classical Greek, Aristotle used bewitched to describe putting someone under a spell so they no longer could think straight or act according to reason. It's also associated with the evil eye, an idiom in Middle Eastern and Hebrew culture denoting envy as opposed to somebody who has a generous, bountiful eye. So Paul was saying that Judaizing teachers had drawn away the congregation's eyes from looking at the simplicity of the gospel. And instead, the Galatians had become spellbound by legal observances. The New International Version renders Galatians 3.1 like this, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. They were foolish because they had allowed themselves to be robbed of their former happiness and gospel liberty. The contemporary English version says, You stupid Galatians, I told you exactly how Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross. Has someone now put an evil spell on you? Another translation renders Galatians 3.1, You foolish Galatians, who has hypnotized you? And yet another version says, Who has cunningly deceived you? I found it fascinating in my research that 19th century scholar Bishop Lightfoot offered an interesting paraphrase, and I'll modernize it a little bit for you. He said, Oh, you senseless people, what bewitchment is this? I portrayed Christ crucified before your eyes as if on placards, but you allowed your eyes to wander from this gracious proclamation of your king. You looked at the withering eye of the sorcerer. You were riveted and fascinated, and the life of your souls was drained out of you by that envious gaze. That's powerful. Paul said he had placarded the Messiah with word pictures before the Galatians. He had preached so graphically that it was like the gospel had been written in large letters before their eyes. Yet they were fickle. They had allowed themselves to become bewitched. The false prophets came along and said that grace wasn't enough, the cross wasn't sufficient, the Holy Spirit wasn't sufficient. They said, you must maintain all the laws and ceremonies of Moses. And they fell for it. They left their first love. They had become enchanted, and their view of the cross was clouded. Paul said, you have abandoned Messiah, and you've gone back to the law. 
But what about the outpouring of spiritual gifts by the Holy Spirit? He asked, was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that you experienced due to works of the law or was it due to Messiah and his grace and your faith in him? Well, to sort this out, let's go back in time to the beginnings of the early church and an event referred to in the New Testament as the Jerusalem Council. In Acts 15, in early church history, we learned that certain people came down to the congregation at Antioch from Judea and they were teaching the believers there also that unless you're circumcised, according to the custom by Moses, you cannot be saved. Sharp disputes arose, resulting in the Jerusalem Council, which amounted to a watershed, recorded in Acts 15, to settle the question of law versus grace. Now, here's the catch about keeping the law that every believer in churchgoer must settle once and for all. Paul and the Apostle Peter testified that it's impossible to keep the law perfectly. They said only the Savior who never sinned could achieve that for us. And after much discussion at the council, Peter got up and said, Brothers, God showed me when I preached in the home of the Gentile centurion Cornelius that God had accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he had given to us. He said God didn't discriminate between us and them. He purified the Gentiles' hearts by faith. So now Peter asks, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have, quite frankly, been able to bear? No, he said, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as the Gentiles are being saved by Jesus. So in the end, the apostles and elders wrote a letter to the churches settling the matter. And the letter stated that it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following essential four requirements. The letter said you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, abstain from meat of strangled animals, abstain from sexual immorality, and abstain from blood. You will do well to avoid these things. Amen. So Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, and the apostles came to the conclusion that even if you could miraculously keep the law perfectly your entire life, yet if you slipped only once and broke the law just a single time, you'd still be guilty before a righteous God. Full stop. You see, all people are essentially lawbreakers. A glass or a plate only needs one tiny crack to be broken. And furthermore, there's an important verse explaining the matter in James 2.10. For whoever keeps the whole written law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Think of that. If we're guilty of breaking a single part of the law, we have become guilty under the whole law. In fact, Paul said in Galatians 3.24 that the law is our schoolmaster to teach us our desperate need of the Messiah, that we might be justified by him, by faith. You see, when we receive Jesus as Savior, God imputes his righteousness to us and covers us like a garment with the righteousness of Messiah, and thus we become the righteousness of God. 
That's why the epitaph on the grave of my parents of blessed memory, Jesse and Sarah Cook, demonstrates their wonderful grasp of the gospel. They chose to be remembered by only three words, which sum up the gospel, Christ, our righteousness. Their epitaph sums up their dedicated godly lives, meaning that they were not trusting in their own righteousness for salvation, but they died trusting in the righteousness of Messiah. They put their faith and trust in his perfect righteousness because they knew Jesus had never sinned. And they will be exonerated on judgment day because they will stand in the righteousness of Christ imputed to them by faith because Jesus kept the law for us perfectly. Here's the thing. Legalists and Judaizers claim Abraham as their father. But even Abraham, the great father of faith, was justified by faith and not by law. Abraham believed God and his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. The just shall live by faith. That's a quote from both testaments in the Bible. Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Genesis 15, 6 is so important that it's quoted at least four times in the New Testament. Paul quoted it in Galatians chapter 3. He quoted it twice in Romans chapter 4. And James chapter 2 also quotes Genesis 15, 6. So the great patriarch Abraham, the father of faith, was justified by his faith. Those who put their faith and confidence in law-keeping aren't true followers of Abraham. On the other hand, those who by faith trust the Lord for salvation and blessing are walking in Abraham's faith footsteps. Let's shake ourselves free from the dead end of self-righteousness and look with simplicity to Messiah's atonement. It is by faith in the finished work of Jesus at the cross that we stand and live. Now then, putting aside the issue of law versus grace for a moment, there are plenty of other issues that can bewitch believers, sad to say, because people in the churches have basically become biblically illiterate. They're so busy chasing after signs and wonders that basic Bible study has often been neglected. And consequently, very few churchgoers know the full counsel of God outlined in the Bible. For sure, signs and wonders are part of the gospel, but they're not our goals. Signs and wonders are natural byproducts of the gospel. Very few today in the churches can rightly handle this word of truth. Just recently, I heard a minister's wife say that she's wanting the glory cloud to visit her congregation, and she said a 12-foot angel with a sword had stood in their church to heal the people. Such notions are erroneous and tickle ears. Who wouldn't want to see the glory cloud? In the Hebrew Bible, the glory cloud appeared in the temple and in the New Testament at the transfiguration and ascension of Jesus. But if we put our focus on glory clouds and 12-foot angels, we can easily become bewitched. So many people are adding to the gospel and subtracting from the simplicity of the gospel. Both the Psalms and the Gospels speak of the Lord's power when he's present to heal, not angels. God, the scripture says, is our refuge and strength. He is a very present help in trouble. 
Jesus warned primarily about deception in the last days. He warned in Matthew 24, 24, that false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Our very real danger, therefore, is deception. The Galatians were genuine believers. They had received the Holy Spirit. But we learned the harsh reality from Paul's letter to the Galatians that even genuine believers can be bewitched if we're not careful and diligent. In the book of Acts, Simon Magus was a con artist in the early church in Samaria. And in Acts 13 in Cyprus, Elymas the sorcerer was another example of false teachers who claim supernatural powers. When we consider the craftiness of deceivers, the Bible warns us that signs and lying wonders will be the trademarks of the future Antichrist and his false prophet. The trouble is, the gospel has been watered down into a popular pop Christianity, a user-friendly version of the gospel that fails to mention repentance or real commitment to discipleship. Today's Christianity is often celebrity-centered around a big group hug. It's a socially acceptable form of religion that's not Jesus-centered. The emphasis is upon happiness, but not holiness. That's one reason why the Hebrew Roots Movement is popular, because it offers deep spiritual nuggets over vapid, bless-me teachings. But isn't it our job as believers in Messiah to provoke the Jews to jealousy and not the other way around? It's so important to stay focused on Messiah crucified for our sins. It's so vital to stay focused on Jesus as Redeemer. Not just Jesus as a great teacher and healer, but one who was willing to be sacrificed for us. Let's stay focused on the simplicity of the good news that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's not regress into error like the Galatians did. They went backwards. Let's go forward trusting in the Savior in these difficult days of deception. What can we learn from the stumbling of the Galatians? First of all, we learn that good preaching should hold up in front of the eyes of people that Messiah was crucified for our sins. After all, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Secondly, those of us who have looked upon the crucified Messiah by faith must guard against false teachers telling us that we need Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus the Torah or Jesus plus Mary and the saints or Jesus plus church traditions. No, just give me Jesus. Yeshua is his Hebrew name. I pray for us all that we can be free from the bewitchery of self-righteousness. We can't save ourselves. A guru can't save us. The church can't save us. The synagogue can't. The Pope can't. Only the Savior attested by God through the resurrection from the dead can save us. So remember, the law condemns everyone who falls short of perfect obedience. One breach of the law and you're undone. But Jesus, having never sinned, kept the law perfectly on our behalf. So his righteousness becomes our righteousness when we receive him. The New Testament teaches that by faith, the righteousness of Jesus is actually transferred to us when we put our trust in him. Then we do good works and we keep the Ten Commandments. 
out of gratitude to God for such a wonderful Savior. Well, I enjoy sharing with you on social media, and please check out our website at exploits.tv where you can find our free library of videos. Our show title, Exploits, is based upon Daniel 11.32. The people who know their God will be strong and do exploits. Also, download our free Jerusalem Channel app. Until next time, I'll always be contending for the faith and praying for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Dark. Maranatha and Shalom.